So this morning we're back in Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be studying verses uh, 17 through 32. Um, Before we do that, I just want to kind of throw this back up. Were there any additional questions or comments that we had in the last section, which was uh, 1 through 16 of chapter 4? I explained it so profoundly and clearly that we'll never have another question about it again. Cool, moving on. I'm kidding. Any like, is there anything else, <laughs> Chris? Yeah, just some of those. You know, we're talking about the differences in the first half and the second half of the chapter. Yes. It's interesting. I don't remember that we pointed this out, but the uh, commands that are given in the uh, second half, imperatives. There's like 41 imperatives, like do or go or that in the second half, hmm. and then. First three chapters, there's only one. Okay. So it's you know just to emphasize that what we've been talking about how this is yes you know what God's looking for and then here's what you do with it or yes type of thing. yeah and I I really appreciate you you pointing that out again <clears throat> I'd actually pulled up a few verses this is not a a new tactic of God's when He explains His commandments He rarely gives a command and simply says, do it because I told you. Normally, he understands that we are more motivated to follow if we understand at least some of God's rationale behind it. And so when when he's uh, presenting his law, when he's giving his law to his people, he gives them the reason, I am the Lord your God, in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. I'm going to remind you what I did for you in Egypt and that you were enslaved and I set you free. Now that you know that, this command should be a little bit easier for you to swallow. He says in Deuteronomy 12 and 28, Be careful to obey all these words that I command you. And he could have put a period there and that would have been fine. Like he's God and he can do that. But instead, he he gives them the reason, if you do these things, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And what parent is not going to be motivated by that? I I would like things to go well for me and for my children after me. And so I'm going to be inclined to do what God says because he's given me motivation to do it. Ecclesiastes, the the whole thing is, is motivation for us to live Uh, Ecclesiastes 12 and uh, and verse 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. With that knowledge, how then am I to live? And so that's what he's doing here in Ephesians. And and he's spent three chapters doing it. He gives us motivation. And I hope that we understand, even through these verses, which sound, uh, especially that, that last one, sound a little harsh, that I hope that we understand that God's motivation for commanding us to do things is because He has our good in mind. He loves us. He wants what's good for us. And He wants us to succeed and be blessed and have good things. And He knows that if left to our own, we will choose the things that actually will destroy us. And so He's motivating us uh, to do that. Any other thoughts or comments? Yes, Brett. Um, One thing that... I hadn't noticed until um, pretty recently was the the emphasis on growth. 
Um, and we emphasize that a lot, that we need to be growing as Christians. But yeah. here in the last half of that the section mm-hmm. we just finished, there are so many times, so many different ways he emphasizes growth. Um, he gave apostles so that the body may be built up in verse 12. Um, verse 13, to be, to become mature, mm-hmm. attaining to the whole measure of fullness. Uh, 14, no, no longer be infants. Um, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become um, the mature body of him who is the head. Um, the, the body, every ligament, in verse 16, grows and builds itself up in love. So, like, I think on every single verse, like there's a, a mm. growth statement in every single verse from, you know, like verse 11 and on in that section. Just um, And to think about how God gave us teachers and elders and apostles so that we'll grow. Yes. And so God gave us those things, so then our our job is to grow, use those things to grow. Yeah, because the the moment of conversion, when, when we choose to submit to God and, and be baptized into Christ, that's not the finish line. That That's the mechanism in which we can then start becoming what God intends for us to be and to grow in that. Absolutely. There's a huge emphasis on that. Well, let's go ahead and dive into this section. I want to break it up into two chunks. So let's do verses 17 through 24. And if I could have a volunteer to read that section, please. Bob? So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Thank you. So in this section... In what ways, and he does it in a variety, in what ways does Paul describe the way that Christians must not walk, specifically in verses 17 through 19? And then we'll tackle the second part of that question here in a moment. What ways does he describe how they mustn't walk anymore? He doesn't exactly say it like this, but basically don't walk in the darkness. Don't yeah. Gentiles who are darkened in their understanding. Yeah, don't walk in the darkness. What else? Desensitized. Okay, and what's the what's the word that he uses there? Well, in NIV it says, having lost all sensitivity, Mm. they've given themselves over to sensuality. Uh, So they've been desensitized to what is impure, and that that's all they're partaking in. 
Yeah, so the ESV says callous, but I really like that, having lost all sensitivity. You've done something enough that you don't even, you don't even feel anymore, and sin, sin does that. How else? Futility. Futility. Right. They're, they're, where they're headed is futile. Yeah, and, and how would you define that word, futility? Uh, emptiness uh, to no advantage or... Yeah. Uh, it's putting forth a lot of effort and getting nothing in return, right? Um, I, I can't. I, I watched a movie the other day that someone was trying to figure out why the stationary bike wasn't going anywhere. And he's like, man, I was on it for five minutes and it, like, I just couldn't get the thing to work. <laughs> it's expending energy for no, for no purpose. And they're doing that in their minds. So they're taking brain power to think through some things and at the end, it is of no benefit. Um, we've already mentioned darkened in their understanding, living in the darkness. It's, it's having a perspective and a, and a train of thought that actually makes us blind. It, it prohibits our vision from seeing the truth. What else? There's another one there in verse 18. Ignorance. Ignorance, right? Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And the way that, that I understand this is it, is it is a willful ignorance. You're old enough to know you should be mature, but you've chosen to not, to not invest the effort to find out. And that is due to what there at the end of verse 18? Hardness of heart. It's because you've chosen to steel your heart against this information. Now... The idea, and, and I've, I feel like that goes along with uh, verse 19, the idea of callousness. It's that we don't care anymore. We've, we've indulged in that sin so much that we don't, we don't feel about it anymore. And, and I believe th this is a mechanism that God has given to us as human beings that can be useful. The idea, I'm willing to endure pain so that I can get through something, and, I, and I, I convince myself, I steal my mind and my emotions to not acknowledge that pain so that I can get through something. Um, uh, Brad, I've been listening through the audiobook of, of Unbroken, mm -hmm. right? This, this man in World War II, and I'm only halfway through, and it's excruciating. Mm -hmm. This man who, who crash landed, and he, he lived on a raft for weeks and weeks, and steeled his mind and his body to not think about how thirsty and hungry he was. Not think about the sharks that were underneath the raft toying with him. Um, in some instances, that's good. We can learn to push through the pain and not acknowledge it so that we can get through something. But Satan also would like us to use that to ignore the pain of our conscience at times. We do something we know we should not, and our conscience says, that is, that is not, that is not good. You shouldn't experience that anymore. But if we do it enough, we steal ourselves and callous our minds so that we aren't affected by it anymore. There's another one here in verse 19. Given over to sensuality. They've given themselves up to or given, given over to. Um, and the ESV reads, it is that they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What, what does that mean, those two things together? How would you, how would you describe that? 
it was what they're living for. You know, they're living for all this sensuality and this impurity, immorality. Yeah, they're living for it. They desire it. They, they want that. And, and they are pursuing it with everything they have. They are greedy for it. It reminds me a little bit of Ecclesiastes. Where the, the preacher is saying that he gave himself over to all of these delights and everything to see what was going on with them. And I mean, we assume he had reason controlling him in the end, but it's that same idea except taken to an extreme and on a negative side. Yeah, it's it's removing the guardrails, it's removing the the hurdles in front of us and just letting ourselves go into it. Um, but then that idea of, of being greedy to practice every kind of impurity, and again, it's because of this book that I'm reading, it, it makes me think of, of drinking seawater, which was this, this temptation for this, this soldier and the men that were with him. And it's this idea that I am so thirsty, I am willing to consume this thing that will actually kill me. But I don't think about that in the moment. I want the water. But seawater, it's, it's this idea that your, your body takes so much to filter out the salt that's in it that it actually uses more of the water that's in what you've just drunk. So it actually ends up needing to take it from your body. You're, you're actually pulling from what was already there and making yourself sick. It's, it's, it's willfully choosing poison. But we look at it as something, I just really want that. I really want to drink that poison. So what about the second part of this question? Who does he say is to blame for that kind of behavior? Themselves. Over and over again, he makes it very clear. In verse 17, it's in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. How much in this section is blamed on their environment or on the people around them? None of it. Yes? I think it's interesting that the very first thing he says in 17 is no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Yes. And if you think about it, that's still their identity. They're still not part of the Hebrew nation. Yes. It's kind of, to me, it makes me think, no longer walk as Americans do. You know, um, we still are Americans, and we would be tempted to just live like we've always lived, you know, but yes. we have this new identity slash nationality in Christ. Yes, absolutely. And it's, it's interesting, because you're absolutely right. Uh, Ephesus was not a Jewish city. It was primarily Gentile. Now, there, there is evidence, obviously, that Jews lived in that city. So we can assume that this church was made up of both, but primarily it was mostly Gentile. And he's saying, don't live like you used to live. You used to live in, in this futility of your minds. You were using all this effort to, to no benefit. You had allowed yourself to be blinded in the darkness of your understanding. Don't do that anymore. There's no benefit to that anymore. Um, and I've got notes on this, but it's not on this slide. So I think we'll come back to that here in a moment. But we live in a world that is masterful in the art of deflection. We learn very quickly to turn criticism of ourselves either back on the person giving the criticism or onto somebody else. 
So it's either our parents' fault, it's our school's fault, it's the preacher's fault, or the church's fault, it's the media's fault. But we have been trained as a culture to say, well, it's not, surely it's not my fault. There are all these reasons why I made the choice that I made. And don't get me wrong. All of these things are powerful influences. The media, our church, our preacher, our parents, they, they have influence on us. But at the end of the day, the Spirit here, through Paul, recognizes that the sin is a choice that we made. We allowed ourselves to be blinded. We allowed ourselves to be alienated and willfully choose ignorance. What kind of similarities do you see in this section with Romans chapter 1? Let's, let's go and, and turn there. We won't read the whole section. But let's go over to Romans chapter 1. Uh, starting in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And this is where I started recognizing some of these similarities. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The evidence was obvious and clear, and yet what did they allow themselves to do? How would you describe this section and, and, and how does it sound similar to what we've just read in Ephesians? Brad? It's interesting that it goes on to talk about the sensualities. Mm-hmm. And, you know, um, that just seems to be where the flesh goes without some identity in God and some other purpose or direction. It, and that's where we are today, right? And we talked about identity. Um, last week in, in our class that a lot of people's identity is wrapped up in their sexual preference or sexual orientation. And that, so, so it makes sense that that's what they run after. That's their identity. That's who they see, they see themselves through those glasses. And yeah. it's just like, wow, how futile it is to wrap yourself up in that and um, have no other direction. So yeah, it just, and I see that as a similarity. Yeah, and we're going to come back to that for sure because the, the idea in, in Ephesians 4 is that you used to be this way, but you've changed. So don't, don't keep referring to yourself in that way. Don't keep thinking of yourself in that way. You've been changed. Do you see a, a, a progression here in Romans 1? that I think is a little bit more obvious here than it is in Ephesians 4. What's the progression? Do they, do, does this individual wake up and say, I've lived a good life. I've been a fairly good person my whole life. I think today I'm going to kill somebody. <laughs> or I've been married to, to someone for 20 years, but today I think I, I've decided to be homosexual. Is that what happens? What's the progression here? 
as God first. Right. First, I'd say even before that, first they ignore the evidence that he has provided for his own existence and his eternal attributes. We can simply look out in nature and perceive at least that much about God. But they ignore that. And then they decide not to honor him. Because if life was just spontaneously created through an explosion, which has always been a destructive force, then why would I honor God? Because he wasn't responsible for it. And then they exchange in verse 23, the glory of the immortal God for something else, for something different. And you see this progression. Through the rest of that chapter, they then give themselves up to these sexual passions and things contrary to the way that God made them. And so we need to be careful that we do not, that we do not ignore what God has put in front of us, the evidence of His existence, and the fact that he is worthy of honor, because that will be a, a, a downward progression and will eventually destroy ourselves. How is the old self, back in Ephesians 4, how is the old self described in verse 22? We're told to put that thing off, the old self, and how is it described? Being corrupted. It's corrupted. It belongs to the, your former manner of life. This is how you used to be. And it's been corrupted through deceitful desires. How would you define those, those terms? Corrupted and deceitful desires. What do we think about when we think about that? Yes. And so it's not that the, the thing itself is wrong. It's redefinition of it is wrong. Yes. Look, Satan is not... He's not creative. He's not original. He has never made something of his own. He has simply taken what God has made and turned it into something <coughs> of his own design. And so he turned sexuality and, and relationship and marriage and those wonderful things, and we see that in our culture today. All he had to do was redefine the terms. Marriage no longer means what it has for the vast majority of human history meant. Love no longer means what God teaches us love means. And so we've been deceived. And we've been deceived with the things that we want. Deceitful desires. Satan knows he can't tempt us with things that are of no attraction to us. So he'll tell us lies about things that we want so that we'll desire them more. And it uses the phrase, being corrupted which seems to imply it's a continual process. It's not yes. like something rusted and then stopped when it got 80% or you know, 15% rust. Yes. It keeps spreading and keeps going. It may not look as flashy later on, but that corruption, that erosion, that rottenness is still happening. Yes, I'm glad you used some of those terms. The idea of rust or corrosion I'm not a mechanic, <laughs> not, not even close, but I do understand that when rust gets on something, that's not something you want to leave alone. You got to do something to correct that because if left alone, it will simply make whatever it has attached itself to weaker and weaker. 
eventually it will deteriorate the thing so that you can with your hands just turn a metal into dust if left alone and he's saying this is what your old man used to be it was infected with something that if left alone it will turn back into dust so we're told to put that off we don't want that anymore um And the point here is it may be discouraging as we go through this first chunk to think, what, ha- what have I done? I- I've ruined myself. That is who I used to be. And it's so discouraging that I allowed myself to, to be fooled and tricked and blinded. And he is not writing this so that we would feel despair. But he's wanting us to, to, to understand, look, you've got to take that old man off. And the good news is there's now something new that you can put on. He wants us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. What is implied by the word renewed? Made new again. It's like new. You know, as opposed to you know, the thing that's rusting and deteriorating. Yeah. You, you think about um, taking a, an old car, you know, that's decades, decades old. Uh, Jeremy's been trying to do this with a Jeep for it feels like his entire life. <laughs> and he's finally gotten to a point where it looks, it looks like the year it was made. And it's starting to run like the year that it was made. And that's an impressive thing, and it takes a lot of effort But the idea is that what was once good and whole and useful has become broken. Therefore, the necessity is that it needs to be made new. Um, And we we don't like thinking about that. We don't like thinking about that without Christ, I'm broken. Um... We live in this world that pushes, I'd say it preaches the idea of self-acceptance. That we are the way that we are, and we shouldn't have any regrets or make any apologies to anyone, including ourselves, for the person that we are. And we should be true to ourselves and accept who we are. That is not a biblical concept. And without Christ, we are being deceived How did the Spirit describe the kind of people that we used to be back in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3? What were some of those terms that he was using? You were great. Just be true to yourself. Follow your heart. How did he describe us? Dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. I don't want to be true to that. That's not who I was made to be. Yes, Katrina. I'm sorry, Sarah. We'll do Katrina first and then Sarah. (laughs) Even in just what you said, that that's not what we were made to be. God made us sons and daughters of God. Yes. So to be true to that would be is exactly what He wants us to be. Exactly. But to be true to be corrupted, be deceptive, be person that we've become because we bought into the lies. Yes, and we, we're told that to accept each other for who we are is the loving thing to do. 
But is it? Because who we are without Christ is, is, is something that is broken. It's saying, I am a cracked pot with holes so large I can't hold anything anymore. And I'm good with that. I was designed to, to carry something. But I become so broken that you pour liquid into me and it's going to pour right out. But I'm good with that. I've accepted myself. Shouldn't we rather say, what can I do? Who can I go to to patch up those holes and remake me? The good news is, the good news of the gospel is that the potter is offering to remake us. To make us what we once were created for. He said that we were created for good works. But through sin, we've allowed ourselves to be, to be broken. He's offering us the, the offer of renewal again. Sarah? And it's, it, it's not just a matter of if you have like a pair of jeans and there's a rip and you put a patch over it that makes it workable and useful. No, it's like reweaving the entire cloth and refashioning the whole thing so that you are new again. Um, using the, the cracked flower pot kind of concept, it's not just um, putting another coat of plaster on the inside and on the outside and leaving the inherent weaknesses. It's making it completely new again, yeah. like it was supposed to be. So yeah. it's not a... Um, you're not being MacGyvered into something. Right. You are just... You are verb? being... Um, recreated to right. what you should be. Yeah, before we address, I think, the four hands that I see in the class, uh, Karen once used to be involved in pottery when she was at Western, and uh, she was she was very good at it, and I would watch her and be like, I don't understand how you're doing what you're doing. Um, the analogy is not perfect, but she would get to a point where the, wind is, the, the, the wheel is spinning, and she's got something that's clearly, like, I'm very impressed with it, but she realized as she's feeling it, this thing is going to fall apart. If I try to take it any higher, it's going to fall apart. And what would she do? She'd mush the whole thing back together, flatten it down, and start again. And I would go, what have, what have you done? She knew that if she kept going, it would not survive the firing process, and it would be worthless. And so she, as the potter, was willing to say, okay, I'm going to start this thing afresh. God is willing to do that for us and able to do that for us. And I know, again, the analogy kind of breaks down because we're talking about cracks after we've been fired, there are cracks. God has the power to start us anew, make that, that clay soft and moldable again, and, and start anew. Uh, Jill. Um, so we kind of said this in a lot of different ways, but in verse um, 24, you get this new creation, new humanity. Yes. Imagery, like your mind should go back to Genesis um, 1. Yes. It says, when, uh, put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God and has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Yes. We are made in his image. We are made in his image. And I don't understand the attraction of Darwinism. If I get to choose if I'm made in the image of a monkey or I'm made in the image of an all-powerful God, like, I, d I don't see the attraction there. We were not created in sin, and the, these are passages here that help to refute that idea, that somehow we're born in sin and we're born corrupted. No, we were made, we were created for good works. We were created in God's image, and he's offering us the chance to, to start again. Um, D David and then Boyd. And what, when you go back to the creation, how did God describe it? Several times he said, it's good. Yes. And when he finished, he said, it's very good. Yes. 
I'll take his word for it. Yeah. Right? And he's willing to give that back to us. And that's before which is, sin entered. Right. Yeah. Boy. I think you have to see the, the power and the appeal of the gospel message to people like that. They, just reading some of the history of the time, they grew sick of where they were. They saw that they, there was nowhere to go. The gospel appealed to people as the way of life. Yes. They, should be, they, they should turn themselves around. Yes. And we've said it before, um, but it's worth mentioning again. God is willing to take us as we are, cracks and all. But the good news is He loves us too much to leave us that way. I don't want a God who's going to take me as I am and leave me that way. That, why would I need God? I need someone who can fix me because I'm broken. And that takes humility. But it, it, it takes the, the willingness to open our eyes to no longer be ignorant, no longer be blind in our own understanding, and, and recognize our, our need for Him. Let's go ahead and read verses 25 through 32. Did I miss any hands? I'm, a, I'm sorry if I did. Okay, do I have a volunteer for reading 25 through 32, please? David? Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Let him who steals steal no longer, but rather let him labor, performing with his own hands what is good, in order that he may have something to share with him who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And we could spend a whole class period on this section. Uh, we've only got about 10 or 15 minutes left here. What specific ways are Christians to put off their old self and put on the new in this section? Um, I'd say all the way back from 20 to 32. I think it's interesting. It's not just don't do the thing that you were doing. It's take it a step further. Yes. Like you can see it very clearly with the feet. Don't steal, but now have something to give extra. Yes. I think going along with what you're talking about with a pottery, once you have an old broken pot, you crush it. And then those pieces of crushed clay, you add to fresh clay, and it makes it stronger. So yeah. that you have a stronger pot than you would have without all of that broken clay. Yeah, and, and this, was, this was Christ's presentation of the gospel. It was not, stop doing this, stop doing this, remove these things from your life. It was then fill your life with good things to replace it. Because how many of us have, have tried to stop a habit just by pure, you know, brute force willpower, but haven't taken the time to replace it with good habits, how successful is that? It's usually not. God understands that we need to fill our lives with good um, so that that 
that evil is not tempted to come back, come back in. What, what specific ways, starting in verse 25, are we given? This kind of, no longer do this, but instead do this. Stop lying. Okay, stop lying. But speak truth. <laughs> but speak truth. Have we had conversations with people where it's like, okay, what they're saying to me, they're not telling me falsehood, but I don't feel like they're telling me the whole truth. They're leaving things out. Or they're just not saying anything at all. Is that truthful? Is that honesty? If we value the relationship that Christ established between us as human beings through the shedding of his own blood, why would I lie to someone that I've been united with? We're part of the same body. And I need to be open and honest with people, not just not tell them falsehoods, but be open enough, not withholding anything or obscuring the truth. Um, we're, try- we're trying to teach our kids the concept of truth and, and lying. And it's, it's tricky with a seven-year-old and a three-year-old. Are you being truthful with me? Or- and there are times where I have to ask very specific questions because I know they're not going to volunteer the information. And getting them to understand, you, you have to tell me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Because if you leave out one of those, you are, in a sense, being dishonest. What's another one? Or any thoughts about this specific one? It's interesting that he doesn't say to not be angry. Right. Right. Is, is being angry by itself evil? Because if it is, who do we blame for giving us that emotion? Ah, and then we put ourselves in a weird position. God gave us all of our emotions, but He has given us boundaries in how we should react when we have those emotions. And He says, be angry, but don't sin. Don't let that particular emotion, which is one of those that really pushes us usually to action, don't let that thing pull us, but instead have control of it. And it needs to be brief. And it needs to be brief. Um, What do you mean by that exactly? Well, when it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, right? you've got to keep it under control. If you dwell on this for a while, it's going to produce bad results. Yes. And, and in fact, what is, it, what is it going to allow in verse 27? The devil and opportunity. The devil and opportunity. That, that reminds me of, at, at the end of Christ's temptation in the wilderness, Satan has presented these, these trials to him, these temptations, and he leaves him for a season. For a season. Yeah waiting for, the ESV says, an opportune time. I don't believe Jesus ever gave him a a good one. Right? Satan tried. We should not allow our emotions to open the doors of our heart, even a crack, because Satan, Satan will take advantage of that. He doesn't need much of a much of an entrance to try and make himself at home. Um, the, the way that our former manner of life has been described thus far in Ephesians is the idea that we were at a time enslaved 
by our emotions and by our desires. We allowed ourselves to be pulled along. And he's saying here, no, no, you pull your emotions along. You take back control. And that involves actively striving um, and actively striving to maintain control of, of those emotions. In verse 28, he does, he does this again. He doesn't simply say, don't steal. Now you may go, well, uh, that's one of the Ten Commandments, and Jesus, I mean, God said, thou shalt not steal, and then he moved on to something else. Well, if you read the rest of the law, he made very clear how generous God's people were to be, right? And you treat your brothers and neighbors and foreigners in this generous kind of a way. He then gave more instructions as to what should happen when you steal. But we remove stealing. What do we fill it with instead, based on this passage? Honest work. Honest work. So that we can accumulate stuff, because that's what life is all about. (laughs) Why should we work honestly? So we could accumulate stuff so we can give it away. So that we can give it away to those in need. You can make your own political conclusions based on this verse, but there is a specific way that God intends for people to support themselves. He wants them to work. He wants to do it in a, he wants us to do it in an honest way and he wants us to do it with our own hands. And he wants us to do it so that we can benefit other people. And if everyone were doing that, we would not be having such massive disagreements on these different sides of, of the political spectrum. Did I see a hand back there? Yes. Just back to the anger one a little further down. I mean, well, obviously, there's times we're going to be angry and we're not supposed to sin. In 31, it said, it says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. But be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. I think sometimes we use that excuse that it says be angry and sin not to be like, so it's okay for me to just be angry about all this like silly stuff. And yes. so there might be a time to use it for good, but we need to be forgiving, not just holding on to that anger. And it's something we need to be pushing to put away from us. Even if we get it, we need to, it's not something to dwell on. Right. Even if, even if it's for a good reason. Right. So. Because let's be honest, rarely is it ever to hold on to anger past the sunset. Uh, I can't think of many scenarios where that's a worthwhile thing. It will only produce those things in verse 31. That's where bitterness and clamor and slander come from. If I'm angry with an individual and I stew on it for day after day, I'm going to be inclined to talk to other people about that that have no business knowing. And I'm going to be inclined to treat them in a different way. Um, That's what anger will produce. Ryan? I I think in um, verse 23 there's a key to that as well, that uh, Twenty-two, we lay aside the old man. Twenty-three, we're renewed in the spirit of our mind, and twenty-four, we put on the new man. Um, so this isn't just about behavior modification. Yes. Um, I mean, there, there's a lot of people that have talked about you know more effective ways to live. I mean, you know, Confucius and Plato, you know, talked about how to live well and. We'd probably be better off if we listened to a lot of their advice. But Jesus, he changes the way we think. He, he changes our paradigm. Right. Um, and I think the first three chapters are the key to understanding, well, why should I 
you know, do hard work instead of stealing. Stealing's a lot easier. Um, well, it's because God has called you to be like him, to be a giving person. God gave, he, he sacrificed. Yes. And so he changes our outlook on him and on ourselves. Yeah, and he does it from the inside out and not from the outside in. He knows that by simply changing our behavior, that is not necessarily a recipe for changing our hearts. But if he can do it from our hearts, out, out of the abundance of our, how, of our hearts, the mouth speaks. Um, so really quickly, and I'm going to put the rest of these up here. And I do want to jump back to this point really, really quick as far as not stealing. We are not created sinners. So if we stop stealing... Should we refer to ourselves as I'm a recovering thief? No. If I've stopped stealing, that's who I used to be, but I am no longer. I am instead called to work with my hands and do honest work so that I can share it with others. Fill in the blank with that kind of sin. Is there such a thing, and this is going to step on some toes possibly, is there such a thing as a recovering alcoholic? No. In, in this moment, I have chosen not to be, and God calls me something different. I was not born an alcoholic. I was not born a thief. I was not born a liar. But Satan wants to define us. And this is going back to what you said, Katrina. We live in a world that wants to put us in boxes, and I am the identity that I've created for myself. So I am a homosexual. I am a fill-in-the-blank. That is not the way that God thinks of us. How does God define us? And he's done it in this letter. What are some words that he's used to define us? In Christ. I mean, we are in only, him. The only identity that we should have is our identity in Christ. Correct. As a child, as an We are heir. his children. We are heirs. We are made new. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. We are alive. Why would I talk about myself as what I used to be? Does that mean that I'll never be tempted by those things again? We, we know that's not true. Does that mean I'll never struggle with wanting to be who I used to be? No, these Christians were struggling with it. But Paul didn't say, I know this is who you are. Deep down inside, you are this thing, but don't be that. No, he says deep down inside, you are his. You were made in God's image. Be that. And what you, what you struggle with is Satan trying to turn you into something that you, you were never meant to be. Does that make sense? And so verses 31 and 32, and I'm sorry we have to kind of do this so quickly. Ah, we, we skipped over 29. Put away corrupting talk. Don't just, don't just put away the things that tear people down. Again, that word corrupting. It is speech that if left alone will destroy. And so I used to, as a kid, I was like, okay, that's the verse that I know not to cuss, right? <laughs> sure, but there is so much more to that. That is, I will not engage in any conversation that tears down. Not the person I'm speaking with or the person I may be speaking about. And so if I have an issue with someone, I'm not going to go and talk to somebody else who can't help that situation just because I've got to get it off my chest. No, that is corrosion. That's corrupting. So being hypercritical, but without offering solutions on how to make somebody better. I'm just going to kind of pick on someone because I don't, I don't like these elements of their personality. Or demeaning. Or gossiping. He even mentions slander. 
None of that has any place. We are to put all of that off and instead we are told to speak only, only such that is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There are some things that we need to say to people, but there's a, a right time and a wrong time for it. So consider the occasion. Going back to what he already said earlier in this chapter, we are to speak the truth in love. And, and, and I struggle with this quite a bit because I tend to talk very quickly and sometimes I finish the sentence and go, I'm not sure why, how that would have benefited anybody. We should, before we begin the sentence, ask that question. Is this going to build up or tear down? And it's, it's as simple as that. And if the answer is, I see no way that this is actually going to benefit the other person, then keep it to yourself. In fact, don't keep it to yourself. Throw it off. Put it off. That's an old man that we should not, um, not partake of anymore. He says, put away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. That's a word we don't use a whole lot. Clamor. Stop making such a fuss. Stop making such noise to, uh, to no benefit. Right? So when we speak, when we act, when we interact with, with other people, we are not just someone who's, who's making a bunch of noise, but to no benefit. Um, I wish we had time for the video, but... Um, I would encourage you all to watch it. Justin makes this incredible illustration that really, uh, pun intended, stuck with me. He says, if you've got an apple tree and you want to change it to a different kind of tree, you don't just cut off the apples and staple pears on them. That doesn't make any sense. And what will happen to those pears? They'll die. You need to take from the root and plant something new. And that's what God is calling us to do. So, for Sunday... Uh, David's going to be taking us into chapter 5, verses 1 through 21, and uh, we'll look forward to that. Thank you all.